Hey, it's Jeffrey Masters. I'm here today with Justin Tranter, who is one of the most successful songwriters working today. Among many hit songs they've written or co-written, that includes Justin Bieber's Sorry, the number one single. They've also written for Selena Gomez, Ariana Grande, Janelle Monet. They did DNCE's Cake by the Ocean. It's a lot. And before songwriting full-time, Justin was the lead singer of the band Semi-Precious Weapons. The band toured with Lady Gaga at one point. So you'll hear us start off by talking about the transition from a front person to this new behind-the-scenes role and just how shocking it can be for people in the industry then and now to see someone like Justin, who is this overt femme queer person just existing in the world. From Luminary Media, this is LGBTQ&A. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Let's jump in. You were originally part of the band Semi Precious Weapons. True. You guys had a major record deals. You guys put out records. You toured with Lady Gaga. From the outside, I consider that to be a massive success. <laughs> yeah. Why do you describe it as a failure? That is a very, very good question. Uh, but we, the answer is almost, it was already in what you just said. You said ma major record deals, plural, honey. So um, we had four record deals and we were dropped from them all. Only two of those labels put out albums. <laughs> um, no one made their money back. Um, we were insanely broke. The Gaga tour was an unbelievable experience. Uh, we lost hundreds of thousands of dollars on, um, put our band in debt for years and years. We, even before the Gaga tour, we had amazing fans. Our fans were so passionate. They are still so passionate. They are so proud of me, but they're really upset. I'm not releasing any more music. Um, but the journey was unbelievable and the fans were unbelievable. Um, so when I say it was a failure, I mean financially. So and not just for us personally, I mean many companies lost millions of dollars on tr trying to make something happen with my band. Um, but I think emotionally it was a huge success and I think culturally it was a huge success. And, I, and whether it's Sam Smith, whether it's Lady Gaga, whether it is different activists that I, I now meet, I think our, you know, our band um, affected a lot of people, especially queer people, especially femme, whatever, however they identify, femme, men, gender nonconforming, trans people, the, the, um, I was kind of like one of their only examples in that era. And so when I say failure, I just mean in within the industry, but I think we did a lot of amazing things I'm very proud of. And so when you were dropped by these labels, how much of your sexuality had to do with like how the industry like dealt with you guys? Um, you know, a lot. It was this very, very interesting thing where people would come and see our show and they would see these fans. So even if it was in a city where we only sold out to 500 people, it was still packed, right? The room is packed. It's crazy. Or if it was in New York and a label came and saw us sell out to 1,500 or 2,000 or even 3,000 people, depending on what year it was, of course, they would come and they'd be like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is crazy. This passion is there. You know, I, I am always had at least one lyric in every song that people could never forget, um, which has now translated into my current career very well. Um, so like, you know, executives would come and see that and they'd be like, oh, we, okay, this is amazing. And then they would sign us and then they would ask us to change immediately. Um, or in three of them, it was asked, it was, we were asked to immediately change. And one of them, it was like a slow, a slow change based on fear because things weren't working and blah, blah, blah. So, 
the things I heard, I always say like it was very passive homophobia and femphobia for the most part. There were blatant homophobic and femphobic things that I would hear from executives and management, blah, blah. But for the most part, it was passive and it was always sold to me in this thing of, well, we believe in you and we think you're a superstar and we think your songs are amazing. So we're just trying to help you. So if you could change who you are, it will really help you. And I think that has worked for people in the past. It was just never going to work for me because um, I'm very, uh, I think I'm a, a very transparent human being and I'm very loud. And it's like me pretending to be somebody uh, I'm not, is just going to look like bullshit and people can smell bullshit a mile away. It's also interesting that the band was working. When they saw you guys live, they were obsessed with it. It's weird they wouldn't want to enhance that. Um, I mean, that's a very common mistake this industry does, whether it's executives, whether it's songwriters, whether it's producers. I walk into every session as a songwriter now, not as the singer, the artist. I walk in as a, as a songwriter um, and I say, I want to know exactly what's happening in that person's life. I want to know if, if they aren't already successful. I, I want to know how they see themselves. I want to know what music they're already making. And I want to dive in and I want to enhance and elevate and focus exactly who they are. And I think that that um, has been the the main key to my success that I've had the last five, six years, um, where a lot of other, even songwriters are like, no, no, here's your song. Thanks, sweetie. Thanks for your time. I'm sure you have ideas, but here's your hit song. Please go go forth. Or executives are like, yes, we, we signed you for this, but we really think you'd be great at this. Um, so it ha it's a common mistake that happens all the time. Uh, and it is luckily because I went through it, I think that that is what's made me so valuable now on the other side of like, I'm not going to do that to anyone because one, it feels like shit. But two, I want them to be excited and elevated. That makes sense. Yeah. I know this is reductive, but were you considered a queer band? Very. Really? So, yeah. And it was interesting because I was the only queer one in the band. Um, I was the only femme one in the band. Um, you were in this position as like the lead singer of a rock band yeah. and you wore heels and makeup and dresses. Yeah. But that's also a profession where you can do that and doesn't like make me question your sexuality. Maybe you wouldn't question someone's sexuality. Okay. But I think you are coming, looking at it through a very different lens. Yeah. Um, I think also too, we have to remember we were in this weird, especially for a band coming from New York. We were in this time, you know, the band started 2006-ish, I think. Um, I, I know actually, um, the internet sometimes says it started at different times, but it started in 2006. And we were in like the post-strokes world. We were in the France Fernet, we were in the Modest Mouse. I think that's a band too. We were in that era. So our band in New York City, in this time was considered insane. And I would look back and the things that Time Out Magazine and the Village Voice would say about our band, you know, if you're if you want a really poncy night or if you want to blah, blah, blah. And there was a, I, I, think, about, I think about it a lot lately because Dan Levy, genius of Schitt's Creek, um, some reporter, journalist, whatever you call these people, critics, called him poncy. Um, and it was luckily a big uproar of like, that's like very veiled, pa like, you know, passive aggressive homophobia, um, blah, blah, blah. Like, we're not going to put up with that. And I was like, oh my God, like when I was in this band started, you know, 15 years ago, whatever. And, you know, until six years ago, that was said about my band in every article ever written. It was always coded queer. It was always coded. Like, this is very, very, and some, you know, good articles would just say with super flamboyant, hypersexual, queer frontman, Justin Tranter, blah, blah, blah. That I would prefer. It was, so it was, 
Yeah, we were definitely seen as a queer band in a good way. And we were also seen as a queer band in a very bad way from like dick rock writers. The writers hated us, but the people loved us. That's fascinating. It is. <laughs> How did queer media cover you guys? For the most part, really good, but also sometimes not because I was so hypersexualized because um, I... I'm a sexual person and uh, my music was, and I just thought it was so fun. I thought it was so fabulous and it was so, I could just, I just would love to shock people and um, queer people being sexual publicly is not really um, in, in, a, in a way that they're in control of. It's not, it's still not that common, um, especially femme queer people being hypersexual um, in a way they're controlled, uh, in control of and not sexualized in a way they weren't asking for. Because I was, I, was, I was asking for it. We sexualized um, the masculine ones. Yes, for sure. And so I was a femme person sexualizing myself. Um, uh, and a lot of queer media was very upset about that because it was like, well, one, we were still hiding femme people. You know, femme still wasn't considered chic or exciting or we weren't getting credit for leading the revolution as we always have, uh, especially not myself. You know, femme queer people of color really have led this fucking revolution. Um, so... We weren't there yet. So yeah, it was a very interesting, a very interesting thing to take in. And then another really interesting point is that my band members who were all straight were experiencing homophobia. Um, and it was really amazing to watch them because people just assumed we were all queer. Um, we would even get articles where, um, you know, everyone, they all dressed cool, but no one else was in makeup at all. They never wore one stitch of makeup ever. They were never in a heel, but you would get articles of like, when's the last time you saw a drummer like kill it in six inch fuck me pumps? And we're like, well, it wasn't our show. I don't, I don't know. But the people were still so overwhelmed by femme queerness existing in public that like, they literally just covered the whole band. Like everyone just assumed the whole band was queer and that they were also in heels even. It was like, which that was the part that really blew my mind because it was like, you can look at their feet. It's their feet are right there. It was fucking nuts. Oh, I wonder nuts. if there was like some kind of like disbelief that these like three straight guys would want to be a part of a band with like a queer front person. Well, we hadn't, we weren't even like, there weren't even examples of like queer people and straight people being friends at this point. You know what I mean? Like, queer men and straight men, I should say. There's been examples of queer men and straight women being friends forever. But um, So there weren't even examples of them, of, of people being friends on television, let alone, you know, Will and Grace had no male friends on the show. There was no straight, sorry, straight male friends on Will and Grace. She had boyfriends, but that was it. So like, there was no example of like, why, would, why are these people together? Wow. Yeah. I asked that about queer media because queer people are not historically have not been nice to queer people in the public eye. Well, I think I say all the time, like we all have to stop calling straight cis women gay icons. We need to be our own icons. And we, I, we can call a trans woman a gay icon. We can call a, a lesbian a gay icon. I, I don't care. They need to be in our fucking community. But somehow we feel more comfortable like all raving about a, a cis woman. Because it's internalized homophobia. We don't, we are not comfortable seeing a queer person act out queerness on stage, but we are very comfortable seeing a cis, normally white woman act out queerness in public because it doesn't, it, it, it appears fab, it, it doesn't make us look at ourselves. It doesn't make us ashamed of ourselves. It seems empowered because if she can do it, then I guess it's okay. And I think because we have such few queer people in public and the public eye, we hold them to impossible standards. 
impossible standards. And I think, for example, um, right now, the community is celebrating the hell out of Sam Smith. Yes. They came at us non-binary. Everyone is like, we love you and we always have dot, dot, dot. That's not true. No. Even like three years ago, the community was dragging Sam mm-hmm. when they won the Oscar and made that comment about maybe being the first gay person to win the Oscar and it was not true. We destroyed them. Mm-hmm. And I find it so like fascinating how um, short our memory is. It's so short. It's crazy that the queer community has forgotten that they were dragging Sam minutes ago. But the positive is is that now that they've come out as non-binary, Sam is being celebrated like never before in our community. So I feel like that is progress and that is a step forward. And I think knowing Sam, being a friend of Sam, now that Sam is living in their truth, there's like there's so much celebration happening. How long have you been using they, them pronouns? Um, I've only been using they, them pronouns kind of like the last couple years. But what it is for me, I say all the time, like, I don't really, this is a personal, this is not for all gender non-conforming people. For me personally, I don't really care about my pronouns because I feel like if they, them pronouns were around when I was younger, I would have like been very hard fast on like, oh my God, this is who I am. Because it is who I am. And um, my femininity is very important to me, um, but I don't see myself as fully trans. So it's, it's, my femininity is so important to me. And so gender nonconforming is very, very, very much who I am and always have been. Um, but the pronoun situation for me isn't that serious. So uh, you use all pronouns. I use all pronouns, but the, the they, them, theirs is the most, what I, I relate to the most. So, so if I have a choice, that's it, but I really don't give a fuck. Okay, and I, I wondered that just because even a, less than a year ago, there were still articles written about you saying like, the man behind the music. They, there still are articles that say that. Um, but you know what's so funny with me and pronouns is that it's like the things like, I, when I've been called like the behind the scenes king of pop, that creeps me out. I am definitely a queen, I'm not a king. I have two dogs I love very much. When people call my me their father or their dad, that creeps me the fuck out. Um, bro, man, that shit is weird. He, him, his does not freak me out. But like, man, king, bro, dude, no dad, dad. No dad. No, no dad. I am their mother. I am definitely those dogs' mother. I'm a boss mother, but I'm still a mother. So like, I shouldn't say I don't care about pronouns because there are weird things that do like make me just like, who the fuck do you think you're talking? Like, why would you ever think that I was somebody's father? But that's just in my own brain. So it's my own thing. Gotcha. Yeah. While we're doing identity questions, yeah. do you still identify as bi? Um, that, as I said, you really dug deep into the old times. Um, when SPW was in like its peak, there was a woman that I was sleeping with. So I guess I was like, well, I guess that I'm bi. Um, but no, I don't identify. I just identify as queer. Queer wasn't even really a thing that you people were saying in a real way 10 years ago. And like straight people would be hesitant to use it. Right. Well, I, I still have straight people ask me if it's okay thing to say, which I think is, I, I'm like always like, always ask. I'm here to ask. And I know that it's not every marginalized person's job and I'll speak specifically to my community. I know it's every, not every queer person's job to educate, but I love to educate. Ask me questions. Let's slow it down. Let's break it down. Because I, I work with only straight people for the most part. There are no, I'm fortunate enough that I've been able to sign a lot of queer up and coming writers and artists, but for the most part, the music business is all straight people. So like, and I'm like the one gay person they know. And that's a real, that's a real thing. That's shocking mm-hmm. to me to hear. Yeah. Obviously artists, you know, with their creative teams and visual teams and blah, blah, blah they know other queer people, but, but producers, songwriters, 
a lot of the male artists, they literally don't know another queer person besides me. So there's a lot of questions that I get asked that I'm happy to answer. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about your catalog and all of your famous songs you've written. I guess the only, the first first and only person that comes to mind is working with Halsey. Mm. Yeah. She's bi, I believe. Yeah, she's bi. She's very bi. Very bi. Yeah. Extremely bi. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I say that because um, in our song, Bad at Love, that I was fortunate enough to work with her on, um, you know, she uses male pronouns in the first verse in a romantic way, and she uses female pronouns in the second verse in a romantic way. And I don't, I've never done the statistics on this because I don't really um, have enough time to dig in, but I'm pretty sure it's the only song that has ever used same-sex pronouns to be that massive. Because whether it was Sam or Melissa Etheridge or all the people in the closet, there was no, they would just not use pronouns. Or they, they you know, Freddie did use female pronouns and which more power to Freddie. I think, you know, he was in relationships with women, so he should do what he Even wants. Even Adam Lambert is not an old artist. Like he, his first album only said you. I love uh-huh. you. I'm interested in you. No 100%. gender. Exactly. No, you're right Sam, about policy. Sam's first album didn't use, um, didn't, didn't use any of that. So, I, I don't know for a fact, but Bad at Love did go number two on pop radio, which is like the biggest thing. For songwriters, that's like our main chart we follow is the radio chart because that's the chart that pays us. Um, so it was, you know, it was like a big, big deal. And it was using same-sex pronouns in a very romantic way, in a sexual way even. So in like a mainstream song. In a very massive mainstream song. And I think it might be the first song to ever do that. Um, I told her label they should do the research and like make a big deal out of it, but it didn't happen. And so with Halsey in that song, was there any pushback from the label or anybody about that? No, to be honest, I don't even think people noticed. And I I will tell people this fact and people like, oh, I guess you're right. Um, Which I think is amazing. So this goes to an issue that I have. Um, I... I didn't know about the gender in that song like changing halfway through until like last week when I was like doing research on you for this interview. Right. And I was like, oh, wait, I love that song. And I went back and heard it and I was like, oh, it's so clear when you're looking for it. But my issue is with um, pop music in general, like I miss a lot of lyrics Mm. just when I'm listening to it. Yeah. And I think that's why I gravitate towards country music Mm. because the diction is perfect. Is that something that is like new to pop music or is it just like I have a less developed ear? I think it's just what we all choose to listen to. Um, And I will say this, in country music, lyric is kind of the only thing they're talking about in the creative process. So the lyric is definitely the forefront of it, where in pop music, we are definitely talking about the lyric is super important to me. The lyric is so important. It's my, but to me, it's the most important part. But you are still having many conversations in the creative process about the melody, about how the track is relating to the melody, about the beat, about the. So there definitely are more conversations being had. And I will say this, like in current, and I love country music. I'm a big country music fan. In current, like pop country, like the great country radio, um, this is obviously a big generalized statement. But the melodies are not good. So the only thing you can listen to is the lyric. So, and and that might be intentional. Like they're putting the lyric first and that's all that really matters to them. And so when we're comparing, let's say country and pop still though, um, the things that make up a country music, that that box is so much smaller than pop. Like you can define country like three things. Pop, it's really hard. Well, what I always say about pop is that pop is any genre. Um, Pop is just really, really clear. So the... 
the songs that can cross over from country to pop, the songs that can cross over from from urban to pop, and that's what the radio format is called. It's called urban radio. Um, for better or worse, that term might need to be changed. Um, actually, it should be changed, but I don't I don't know if anyone's gonna listen to me. But um, from alternative radio, blah, blah, all the songs from those genres that cross over to pop radio, which is the biggest format, I always feel like it's just, it's not the, I'm not saying they're the best, they're just the clearest. So like to me, what pop means, because pop can be any genre, is that it is so clear. You listen to that chorus one time and you can remember it and you know what they're talking about and you know why they're talking about it. And the track, you like, it's all just so clear. So to me, when I'm aiming for like, what is pop? Pop just means it's like the clearest version of what you're doing. That's fascinating. I also think that um, you have made your name as being this pop music songwriter. Yes. And yet that is definitely not what kind of music you made with your band. And it's not the music I listened to. And the music I listened to didn't sound like my band either. So I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with my life, but I think it's working. So it's not, so so there's like so there's music you write today, there's music you made with your band, and there's music you listen to. And those are all three different. Very three different things. That it... It's like, can you explain that disconnect? I mean, no. <laughs> yeah, I could try for you, but um, the music I listen to is very much like alternative folk, female singer songwriter vibes. So I'll need to. This year, my two most listened to artists. Number one was Patty Larkin, who's an amazing singer songwriter from Cape Cod. Um, I don't know her age, but I'm 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 guessing she's over. 55 for sure. And then my second most listened to was Ani DeFranco, who was, you know, by self-released independent music icon from the 90s, very political folk singer. And I actually just got to work with her this past weekend at her home in New Orleans, which was amazing. Um, almost threw up, but I got through it and we made some great shit. Um, like those are, those are my two most listened to people from this very year. Mine was Brady Carlisle and Tracy Chapman. Okay, so we're kind of in the same world. <laughs> very very so, queer. <laughs> very, very queer. Uh, very like females with guitars, queer. And good diction. Yes, very, well, yeah, lyric first. Like that's what, that's what I listen to in my personal life. Then semi precious Weapons kind of happened. That sound came out of like trying to recreate the New York that I thought I was going to move into. When I got to New York, it was already like the big financial change, like where everyone was moving there for finance was happening. Um, you were either moving there for finance or like to be Carrie Bradshaw, you know? And I was thought we were all moving there to be Andy Warhol and the Ramones and Debbie Harry. Um, and I got there and I was very wrong. There was just like seven of us who moved there to do that. Um, so I, the band was kind of born out of trying to recreate that energy. Um, and kind of matching my personality. I mean, we're sitting here talking, right? Like, that's kind of the band that the person, my personality was very close to like the lyrics in that, in that world. But the sound was just created out of like, fuck New York City. Like we need to fuck that this place That is so up. interesting. Yeah. And then pop music just happened because um, a door was open for me and I ran through it super hard. And it wasn't, the opportunity was an accident. I wasn't, going for the opportunity, but I definitely, once the door was open, I worked so hard, I almost died 17 different times. But, um, and so you went from being the, the lead singer of yes. this band to creating art that when the public sees it has somebody else's name on it. Yes. Was that like a big decision to do? No, it was just basically, you know, for the first year I was still doing both. 
um, the band had just been dropped from Epic Records, and we were so trying. So you are by. Okay, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the band had been dropped from Epic Records, and um, we were figuring out how to put the album out because we loved the album and blah 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 blah. And the guy that signed us to publishing had left the publishing company, and we thought like, oh, that's another kiss of death. Like now we have. To, but luckily, the woman who was brought in to replace him was named Katie Vinton, who's now my business partner, and she's amazing. And I played her the new album, the, which was the last SPW album, which was called Aviation, and she was like, I love this, and it's leaning way more pop. Now it was still like, it, you know, it did decently well on, on alternative radio, so it was definitely alternative pop, but like it was leaning more. She's like, so while you're figuring out how you're gonna put that album out, I could put you in sessions with and for other artists if you want. So it was kind of like started as like, oh, let me just go do this while, you know, I'm, we're in limbo anyway. We're, we already toured the album before like three different times. We couldn't go back on tour. Um, you said you were broke. Was money part of the decision? Oh, completely. We were so broke. I mean, it was like, it was, you know, I think between a couple random band gigs and then we would host parties and this and that. Um, in 2013, um, I made $12,000 for the entire year. Um, which was like way below the poverty level. So um, so it was in that year I was writing songs for other people, started doing that process. But when you, I first start, you're just in rooms with other writers and producers who are, who are just trying to make this happen. I was never in with artists unless they were like a brand, 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 brand new artist. Um, so it was just like a year of like, well, I'll just go do sessions and like maybe one of these things will connect and like financially I can have something and then just go back to the band full time. Um, but then I started to really love it and it started to feel so freeing because it was like not about me. And there was something so creatively um, exciting. And as I just said, freeing to be like, this has nothing to do with me. Let me just help this person fucking be the best version of themselves they possibly can. And even if that was a different co-writer, um, you know, because it was, I'm coming from this alternative space. And then on my private time, I'm listening to like lesbian folk music. Like there's like, even if it was a co-writer, I was like, you love pop music in a real way. Let me just see if I, what my weirdness and my focus can help do to your vision. But yeah, so it was like a year of writing while still doing random band stuff and trying to make that happen. And then one day I was just like, fuck it. Like, and we had really weird business people in our life, one in particular at the end um, who was making things really difficult. And it was the first time I was getting like the, like not passive homophobia, like blatant, like, replying to an email about the video for Aviation High where I'm like wearing gold glitter eyeshadow, but he's, the, this person in our business life was really upset about how my hands were moving in certain shots because I looked too feminine. And I was just like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I, at that point I was 33, right? 2013, so I was 33. And I was just like, I can't fucking do this. Like I'm, I'm out, I'm, I'm done. Um, and so it was like, and I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have a hit yet. I didn't, but I, I, some big people had recorded songs, um, and my band members supported me and they understood why. And I was able to hook them all up with great jobs now. So everything's good. <laughs> they hold nothing against you. <laughs> exactly. Now. So what is that when you started identifying like first and foremost as a songwriter? Yeah. And I was like, this is working. And I think that this is what I'm meant to do at least for now, because, um, you know, I think as queer people, um, especially, you know, by, at least for me, I speak personally, I should speak personally that 
at that point at 33, I really knew who the fuck I was. I kind of have always known who I was. And even when I, you know, we, I grew and changed as a human being, I was very aware of the growing and changing. It was happening. So when you're like a queer person who is super confident and super free and super excited to just like do something, um, I think it, it, it's been very helpful for me to create a, a lot of confidence and joy and freedom in these writing sessions that, um, I, I saw the value that I was bringing very early and I was like, let me just fucking do this. I'm tired. And these people really like value and appreciate what I'm bringing to this room. So like, I'm just going to fucking go here and enjoy it. And thank God I made that decision. I think it's really trendy to say that you don't have to be a great singer anymore to make it. Do you agree with that? Well, it's never, you've never had to be a great singer. Well, so what is, what is that it factor? Like, like here, here's an example. I love Jennifer Hudson's voice. Right. And she has, um, something's like missing from her career, which is like the big one song that will be her legacy. Right. And um, she has a great voice, but like, is it the songwriting? Is it the producing? Like what is missing that like she isn't the queen of pop? Well, I think what it is, since I, I can't speak on Jennifer Hudson's career because I, I don't, I've only met her once at a party and I think she's amazing. And I think a lot of people would kill for her career. Um, like literally, I think people would kill for that career. So, but I, I can say like, Storytelling has always been, you know, music, I know it sounds cheesy, but it's so fucking true. Music is the universal language and storytelling is the most important part of that. And again, even if it is a party song, you want to believe that the person singing that song has 20 motherfuckers in the studio having the time of their life. They're all high or drunk or sober as fuck, just having an amazing day. You want to believe that it's real. So I think that the the goal has always been storytelling. And some people are just really, really, really good storytellers. And sometimes you can be an unbelievable singer who also tells the story. But sometimes you can just be an okay singer who tells the best story you've ever heard. And you're like, I don't care that they don't, they didn't train opera. That's interesting. It's just like, there's no like one thing. You know, There's no one thing. Or you look at, you know, Bob Dylan, right? Like one of the, you know, I, th- I, th- I think because he's a man, he gets considered the greatest songwriter. I don't know if I'd call him the greatest songwriter, but one of the greatest American songwriters. He would, he would be the first person to tell you that he's not a great singer. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just... It's different. Yeah. When you say, when you told the story about like 20 people in a studio jamming out, I think that like uh, one of the bigger surprises for me is how many hands touch a song before we mm-hmm. hear it. Yeah. Like I think the myth of the pop star has, um, you know, this little boy in his room with a guitar, he writes a song, he walks into his studio, records a song, and then it's on the radio. Yeah. And there's so many hands touch that along the way. So many hands. And what's, that's, you know, now I'm sure we've all seen the memes of like, oh, you know, it used to take one person to write a song and now it takes 20. Um, Because there are songs that will have like 15 writers credited. Some of that is bullshit. Some of that is like politics and the person did not write at all. Some of it actually is really great where people back in the day were not being credited properly. You know, if, if I show up to a session with a song that I wrote and it's just like basic piano chords and the the vocal part that you know um if somebody in the room plays an amazing guitar riff or piano line that's really specific and is actually it now becomes a piece of the composition that person is going to be credited as a songwriter because they should back in the day they would just be paid as like a, a studio musician here's your one-time fee oh. go home so they wouldn't be credited as a songwriter even though they probably should have now part of it is like no, people are being properly taken care of. And so now you all want to make fun of us on the internet that no one can write a song alone. And it's like, no, people are just actually getting paid 
and credited the way they should be. How many of those rules to a song like have to be there and how many can be broken? Well, they all can be broken. And I, I don't even want to call them rules because it's really like, they're like helpful, they're like helpful hints. It's like, and like if this helpful hint helps you in this specific situation, yeah, let's fucking use it. Um, and then also too, people are, you know, it's it, the math of music is helpful because it lets people be familiar and they kind of want to know what's coming. And then when you break a rule and there's something that they're not expecting, then it's really, really exciting. What I think is really cool is because hip hop is so powerful in our culture right now, it is letting pop writers and pop artists feel a little more free of like, you know, never ever would we have a second verse that didn't match the melody of the first verse, at least almost exactly. Like maybe change up one line of the melody in the second verse. Now, if you want, you can just write a whole new melody for the second verse because um, kids are used to that. Because when hip hop, you know, it's only the chorus is repeating for the most part. Obviously, these are all general terms that I'm using, but and blanket statements. But like, so now it's it's really exciting because we can. I'm working with this new amazing um, girl group, and the. Um, uh, producer writer team that I'm working with are these fucking fabulous women. Their, their, their duo is called Nova Wave and they come from the hip hop space and they've worked a lot on the Carter's album and they've worked, they're just amazing. And so they're like, they just assume we're going to write a completely different melody for the second verse. And my pop brain goes, uh, can we do that? I'm like, yeah, we can fucking do that. Of course we can do that. And it's like, we're having this really awesome collaboration um, because it's like the rules are are melting away, but of course you still, if you need the help, the rules are there to help you. And so with this girl group you're producing and yeah. you also created a record label and publishing company, yeah. is that more of the direction you want to move into? Yeah, I want to just um, be more invested in the things that I, I work on. So um, the things that are not signed to me or that I'm not executive producing, um, you know, it, it's artist projects that I, I know I'm like, I really can get involved in. So what, you know, if it's a Selena we know how great we work together. If it's Imagine Dragons, we know how great we work together. Um, so, but besides those people that like I know and love, I, I, if I'm not like really invested in the project, I just don't want to do it anymore because it's, it's, you know, the only thing I miss about being in a band is being a part of the whole conversation. And it's nice you're in a place in your career where you could make that decision. It's very nice. And I get to open doors for other marginalized people, which um, is probably my favorite part. I get to, you know, whether it's this amazing songwriter, Kennedy, who's signed to me, who's queer as fuck and, you know, 20 years old and blah, blah, blah. Like that makes me, or working with Shia Diamond or these people, it makes me feel so proud that like now with the success and platform I have, I can open doors for other LGBTQ people. And open doors for them, but also like make them feel comfortable. Yeah. And celebrated and, 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 and like, not treat them the way that they, you were treated. Exactly. And I really do think that there's a real like queer superpower to storytelling. So I really think like we're, we have a, a right to be here because it will make people a lot of fucking money. So it's like, that makes me feel good of like, no, trust me, you want queer people in basically every session because we're really good at telling stories. That's amazing. And that's an amazing place to leave it at. There you go. Thank you for this. <laughs> of course. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Yeah. All right, that was Justin Tranter. Until next week, come find me on social media. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. That's a great way to stay connected and recommend guests. LGBTQ&A is brought to you by Luminary Media, Neon Hum Media, and The Advocate. We're produced by Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Stafford, John Asante, Kate Mishkin, and myself with sound engineering by Mark Bush. We'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>